Hello, welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, Evan Brand. Thanks for joining me. I'm a certified functional medicine practitioner. You probably already know that if you've been listening for a while. I apologize. I have to keep introducing myself, but hey, there's new people every week. Over 10 million downloads of the podcast. Thanks so much. Uh, that was a while ago, that 10 million milestone, and I honestly just stopped counting uh, because you have to look at the per episode stats and then you have to add them up. But last time I checked, we were over 10 million. So thank you so much. I've got over 500 and something reviews now on iTunes. They technically got rid of iTunes, didn't they? Now they call it Apple Music or Apple Podcast. So on the Apple Podcast app, review my show, please. I would love to have your review. It takes like two seconds. If you're on the app, if you're on my show, you should see a button. See, my tongue's not working yet. I just started talking for the morning. <laughs> right on the app, though, you, you should see under the thumbnail podcast artwork, you should see write a review, or there should be a ratings and reviews tab, and then you should be able to click write a review. Boom. So thank you all to the 500-plus people that have done it. Isn't that crazy, though? If you're somebody listening who has a podcast, there's many people that do. It takes 10 million downloads to get 500 reviews. That just tells you how few people review. And I understand. I get those pop-ups on apps, and it's like, do you love this app? And then you click yes. And then it's like, great, review us. And then if it's like, no, and it's like, okay, review us. Tell us why. It's like, no, I just I don't want to respond at all. I just want to use the app. So I understand. I know. But please, review the show. I'm a real person, and it fuels me. So I really, really, really do appreciate it. Uh, the latest review from someone titled Inglewood. I love listening to Evan. The podcast helped me get to the root cause of a couple symptoms I've been having, things that I didn't even realize were symptoms like ridges in my nails. It's nice to hear what I'm experiencing validated. Thanks for your work. Hey, you're welcome. Totally appreciate it. Nick said, love the passion and energy from Evan and Dr. J. Moreover, they give enough science to explain the why behind their strategies without overwhelming the layperson. Most importantly, they give simple and actionable steps without going on and on about cellular physiology. Thank you guys for the work you continually put in. Yeah, here's the deal. I mean, I've listened to a bunch of other podcasts and I really had to unsubscribe to almost all of them because it's just brain candy. Well, in this molecular of the cellular and the hydrogen and I mean, we get into that a tiny bit, but it just really doesn't change your day-to-day -day life that much. And I don't know. I don't want to waste your time with that. So thank you for those reviews. There's many, many more. And uh, I would love for you to add your story, your review to the show. So please do it. But without further rambling, let's dive into the podcast here with Dr. Al Dannenberg. He's a periodontist, certified functional medicine practitioner, ADAPT trained health professional, uh, primal health coach, and he's been working on people's mouths for over 40 years and recently retired and I think part of it was due to his diagnosis and so we're going to dive right into that and what he's been doing ever since and if you need to reach out clinically I am available my website evanbrand.com has all the details my auraroots.com website it's in your show notes on your app there that has my omegas and the multi and pure digest enzymes and everything I'm doing on a day-to-day -day basis to continue optimizing myself. Those things are all at the, at the AuraRoots.com shop. All right, here we go. Dr. Al Dannenberg, the first periodontist on the podcast. Thanks for joining me. Well, it is such a pleasure for you to invite me. Thank you. Yes, I've had, uh, I've had dentists on before. Are those the same thing as periodontists or are you all different? We are so different. No, actually, um, you have to be a dentist to specialize. So periodontology or 
the specialty of periodontics is a specialty of general dentistry. So, you know, like a physician has to go into medical doctor training before they become a radiologist or an anesthesiologist or whatever. Any periodontist has to become a general dentist first and then specialize. So it's a curriculum of four years or so of dental school, and then generally now it's around three years, maybe four years, to go into the graduate program for periodontics. Cool. And so on a day-to-day basis, uh, you're not practicing actively in that field anymore? No, I'm not. I did that for 44 years, which is a long time, older than you, fella. (laughs) And then, uh, yeah, so I stopped practicing in September of 2018. Wow. But I'm still very active. I do consults all over the world and write and lecture and do Zoom and Skype webinars. So I'm very much into dentistry, but I'm not seeing patients in a clinic one-on-one like I used to. Awesome. Now, what are the biggest game changers in your field? You had written about something on your blog called this LANAP protocol. Yeah, it's amazing how dentistry stays kind of status quo for a long time, and all of a sudden there's something exciting that just pops up. In my field, which is periodontics, mainly gum disease, jawbone around the roots of the teeth, the jaw joint, that kind of thing, um, we have pretty much done traditional, conventional periodontics, cleaning out infection, going through a variety of procedures, for decades until this procedure, which is a laser procedure. It's a very unique type of laser. There are many lasers in in medicine and dentistry, um, but this is a very particular type of laser, and lasers work differently because of their wavelength. So one wavelength has a totally different effect than another wavelength. So this is a wavelength that actually encompasses a, a wavelength of 10 64 nanometers, 1,064 nanometers. And that wavelength is rather specific for the bacteria that are extremely virulent in very active periodontal disease that causes the jaw to decay and, and quite a number of other problems. And this laser kills that bacteria without killing other cells, which is kind of unique. And it also stimulates the stem cells in the jawbone and the mitochondria to regrow, regenerate new jawbone, new fibers that attach the tooth to the root, and the actual cells called cementum that these little fibers attach to on the root, between the root of the tooth and the bone. It's kind of like a hammock. So all three elements, the fibers the cells on the side of the root as well as the bone structure are all regenerated by this particular technology. And what's beautiful about it is traditionally to treat active periodontal disease that was aggressive, surgery was involved and it's uncomfortable for patients, a lot of swelling, a lot of pain, a lot of healing time, at least a week to 10 days. Using this type of laser procedure, Patients go back to work the next day. We don't have to cut open the gum tissues. There's hardly any swelling, hardly any discomfort. Generally, if you need anything for pain, it's like um, uh, ibuprofen, over-the-counter, over the Advil, something like that. So it's really a beautiful procedure. So that changed the way I practiced periodontics. And I had been doing it for six or seven years before I retired. 
Very cool. Now, I wonder if I would benefit from it. So I had uh, all four of my wisdom teeth were impacted. I got those out, and my uh, my 12-year molars never came in. They were like at a 90-degree angle in the bottom, and they were just straight but impacted up in the top. So I'm eight teeth down. I've got all those out. Oh, well. Okay. And so I had cavitations. I did go down so, to Texas. So how, how did you know you had cavitations? Uh, so I got a cone beam that was a waste of time because their software couldn't load it but then we just used a recent pano x-ray and i had a guy Stuart nunnally who you may know i do look mm-hmm. at it and he's like i'm 90 percent sure you have cavitations and i had heart palpitations and a bunch of weird symptoms so he said well let's just check it out and make sure and so they opened it up and of course i was asleep but according to him and his staff I had a lot of necrotic bone down in there right, that they exactly. scooped out and cleaned out exactly. and they did the platelets and all that. But I just wonder if my if I'm still disadvantaged or if once it's clean, if it was done right, then you're done with it. Once it's clean and it's done right, you're done with it. Absolutely. Um, periodontal disease is a little different than cavitations. So cavitations are really a problem that most dentists don't understand or some don't believe in. Yes. And yeah, and and it is a difficult lesion to diagnose even on an x-ray like a cone beam which is three-dimensional, it may or may not tell the tale. So there's a history that has to go along, you know, your medical and dental history has to kind of confirm that this is a potential um cavitation and the cavitation is not really a dental term but basically it must be uh infected if it's not if it's just demineralization if if you know what i mean where the bone has not hardened as much in an area where there was an extraction as the surrounding bone that doesn't mean there is an infection it will look like it's a hollow space possibly on an x-ray or a cone beam but it definitely is not something that needs to be treated. In my opinion, there are a number of dentists that don't know what they're doing, or maybe they do know what they're doing. They see this demineralized area in the jawbone around a third molar, for example, and they immediately say to the patient, you have a cavitation. And they confirm it by giving a history of what it can do. Of course, the patient is very concerned, and they go in for this extensive surgery, which is a little pricey, right? Yeah. Three, four, five thousand dollars per cavitation, depending on what's going on. And the problem is there's only demineralization. There's no reason to treat that because it's not infected. There's no necrotic tissue. There's no foreign object stuck in the bone. And of course, unfortunately, they treat it. Um, they can't prove that it was a real cavitation or not because they never do any documentation like cultures or whatever. Oh, speaking and, of, in that yeah. case, uh, so we did send off whatever came out of the jawbone over to, right. I think we sent it to DNA Connections because I do a lot of Lyme testing through them, but I, I believe they do some kind of dental thing and it came back with insanely high levels of Klebsiella and a bunch of oh, other... Oh, sure, sure, sure. And that's the point. My, the point is that a dentist like Dr. Dr. Nunnally would certainly do the, the, the buildup. Uh, I mean prepare you for the potential, but he would test the area to make sure there's infection. And if there was infection, he would treat it, culture it, do all the things that need to be done. Yes, when there is infection like that, 
um, bacteria that is actually should never be there or tissue um, fragments of things like um, a broken piece of a tooth or a piece of calculus or even a piece of a filling that gets stuck in the bone causes this this um, abscess and infection. All that has to be removed because the problem is you don't feel it generally. Sometimes there's pain in the jaw, but frequently there's no pain in the jaw with a cavitation. The pain if there is pain, may actually go to another organ system. What's happening, just like any chronic systemic inflammation, is it stimulates a cytokine reaction in the immune system, and then once the immune system gets aggravated, there is systemic inflammation that pours out to every organ system uh, through a process of metabolic endotoxemia. And what you develop is a lesion here, there, or everywhere based on the genetics of other organs in your body. And it's very difficult for a medical doctor to correlate that lesion, let's say, in the heart to a lesion in the jawbone. It can be done, but it's not easily done. And the problem is most patients that have lots of chronic diseases and they go to a functional medicine guy and gal or whatever and they they have all these tests done and it shows things are not right but they can't figure it out the gut microbiome is wrong their SIBO all of these things are a problem but they never get really under control because the source of infection is still in the jaw and no one knows that it's like a splinter of your in your finger you know if you had a splinter in your finger you could be the healthiest guy in the world you could do everything right but guess what? The splinter never, the, the skin never heals around the splinter until you take the splinter out. Once you take the splinter out, the, the hole heals, the puncture wound heals. But if you took that splinter and kept stabbing it in your finger, it would never heal. So a lot of people just don't understand the damage that's in their jaw, or they're constantly re-irritating the mouth so that nothing heals properly in the jawbone, yet all these other organ systems are being affected and diseases are manifesting, which is the actual cause in the jaw, but no one knows that. Wow. And if you listen to Dr. Danaberg's bio, he's got some functional medicine training under his belt, which is awesome because not many dentists do. And I think they're missing the boat when they don't connect the mouth to the gut and everything else. So you said a couple things I want to unpack. But first, let me tell you about my symptoms and tell me if you think it made sense. So I was sore all the time just right on that jawbone kind of under the ear just ah i was like opening my jaw all the time just constantly this kind of gnawing pain back there and then the heart palpitations and then i had some random blood pressure spikes so this whole cytokine storm you were talking about all those symptoms could have been caused just from cavitations is that true Absolutely. So don't forget what we're talking about is cavitation is literally a walled off abscess in the jawbone that is seeping into the blood system through blood vessels or seeping into the circulatory system eventually by way of the lymph or actually traveling the nerve sheaths in the jaw to other areas in the body. So it's a big deal. I mean, it sounds like you're not saying... I mean, could you become septic from this over time? Absolutely. It can kill you, just like any infection can kill you. Wow. See, because when you hear about it, you kind of feel, I mean, with everything I've done in functional medicine and the fringes of it, you always feel like you're the crazy guy because you'll go to five dentists and they're like, no, cavitations aren't real, whatever, this is disproven, this is pseudoscience or whatever. So, so then you always feel 
like I know in my heart it was the right thing to do. I was like, this makes sense. I got it done. I looked at the the sample of my gum tissue. I saw I had major infection going on. But then when you get done with it, and I'm like, well, what if the heart palpitations were something else? So then you start kind of questioning, was it really that? Was it really that infection? So it sounds like it could be, it, it could have been. It definitely could have been, and it could be one thing causes another thing that causes another thing eventually causes your heart palpitations. So the, the problem is if, you know, the jawbone, the jawbone is basically sterile. You don't have bacteria running around inside your jawbone. Um, theoretically, that would be the case. So when you had uh, Dr. Nunnally take a culture of this um, soft, ugly tissue, and it came back with lots and lots of growing bacteria, it automatically told you something's not right, and it should never be there. And you couldn't really take an antibiotic to kill it because, number one, I don't like antibiotics. They're just indiscriminate killers of all the the bad, but all the good too. So you don't, you don't want to do that unless it's an acute situation, but still it, it, it has a difficult time passing through the bone to get into that lesion that's already walled off with a variety of types of biofilms that are relatively impenetrable to some antibiotics. What you had done, I'm assuming was the area was a nuclei basically scraped out they probably they could have used some ozone in the area yes. or okay uh, not critical but ozone is good they could use a laser the kind of laser that I use for periodontitis would actually um, kill a lot of this bacteria in addition they could have put some kind of um, uh, platelets that drew some blood from your arm and and spun it down and that platelet fibrin clot is very regenerative and is relatively inexpensive because it's your own blood. They could put that as a plug into the bone socket, the hole. Um, and they could put a variety of other biologically active chemicals to, to stimulate your bone. But the important thing is whatever is destructive in that socket area, that hole, that lesion, has to be completely removed so that all the bone is exposed to have healthy bleeding surfaces so that it can regenerate new bone structure. Yeah, that's exactly what they did minus the laser. And I did uh, acupressure before and after. They were real big on that. And I had no pain. It was bizarre, you know, because my wisdom teeth extractions were miserable. And I was swollen like a chipmunk. I mean, this, it was nothing. I had minimal to no swelling. I had virtually no pain. It was unbelievable. So it sounds like it was smart to do. Now, Oh, absolutely. Okay. Especially since that culture was so positive. Yeah, that was yeah. smart to do. Wow, good. Good to hear. Okay, awesome. So uh, you and I are in a uh, kind of a mentorship group together, and that's how I found out about your story of finding out that you had cancer. And I've been kind of following along the sidelines, watching you go down the rabbit hole of these various uh, what you consider unconventional cancer protocols. And you had a blog less than a month ago where you said that your recent PET scan confirmed there's no active cancer cells in your body. You can't say you're cured. You're not even in remission yet, but you're very encouraged that your fight looks like you're going to be the winner after 21 months on your yep. cancer journey. Time how, will tell. How fantastic is that, huh? That's crazy. So, <laughs> so first of all, I'm 73 years old. Okay. So I'm not a youngster. And, um, 
Do you want me to go over this little story with you? Yeah, well, I have. I mean, my first thought is, okay, dentist, he's got to be exposed to tons of mercury. Did the mercury do this? So you just jumped into this great story, so I'll go there first. Um, All right, obviously I get diagnosed. Well, how'd you, before you even got diagnosed, what was going on? You had to know something was wrong. Well, no, and this is really interesting. So I had been paleo with a paleo lifestyle, paleo diet for six years or so prior to my diagnosis. And I really was doing amazingly well. At the age of 71, um, I had been paleo since the age of 66 to 71, I guess. At the age of 71, I really considered myself a senior poster boy for a healthy lifestyle. And I was lecturing around the country, writing quite a bit, doing consultations um, all over the world. And of course, I seeing patients in a clinical environment, just like you saw your dentist. So uh, I was actually speaking at Paleo FX in April of 2018, traveling from Charleston, South Carolina to Austin, Texas. I have to go through Atlanta Airport, which is you know, my hub. Um, and generally when I have enough time between flights, I walk the concourses, which is a nice long walk. And I put my bag on my right shoulder and I did that. And, and I, and I do that. Um, and I'm walking from concourse A to maybe concourse C or D and my shoulder, my right shoulder gets really sore. I don't understand why it's getting sore. Just gets sore. I get to the meeting, I do my talk, I come home, and the soreness just doesn't go away. And then it seems to go to my back, and then it goes to my chest, and I'm a little hard-headed, and eventually I go and make an appointment with my physician in August of 2018, and I come to see him. I say, you know, I got this problem. He says, yeah, you're, you're sore. I say, yeah, I'm sore. And then he says, let's do some blood tests. So he did just general blood tests, a CBC, you know, the blood chemistry, the, the blood, um, white blood count, red blood count, and everything else incorporated, and some basic chemistries, and a CRP, an HSCRP, high sensitivity, high sensitivity um, H-reactive, uh, C-reactive protein. So everything comes back basically within normal ranges, conventional ranges, and the CRP comes back high. Generally, my CRP was always less than 0.5. It was somewhere around 5 or 6. Concerning, and he said, obviously, we've got a systemic inflammatory response. I don't know if it's chronic. I don't know if it's acute. I don't know where it's coming from, but something's going on. So we do an MRI. When we do the MRI... Um, he calls me, asks me if I want to come into the office. I say, just talk to me over the phone. This is a guy I'd been seeing for 35 years. So I knew him, he knew me, uh, and I've seen him every year for a long time. Anyhow, um, he says, I'm really concerned. I see a, uh, two cracked ribs, a vertebral compression fracture, and a hairline fracture on your pelvis, and a soft tissue mass around two to three centimeters in diameter on the side of your spine. And it blew me away. Now the pain that I started to have was because my bones were breaking. I had no idea why, but they're breaking, especially my ribs. So he calls in an oncologist. We do a few other tests, one of which is a PET scan. PET scan is kind of a fancy three-dimensional x-ray of the whole body. 
but it also injects a radioactive glucose in solution because cancer cells eat up um, glucose and it will light up on the x-ray. And he felt his di differential diagnosis was either I had a lymphoma, leukemia, or multiple myeloma, none of which I wanted to have. And here I'm still thinking, I'm a healthy guy. I just maybe tore a rotator cuff or whatever. So my oncologist brings a bunch of tests. He brings me and my wife, my two adult children, into his office. And I have the diagnosis of IgA kappa, light chain multiple myeloma, moderately to aggressively advanced type of disease with what's called innumerable lytic lesions throughout my skeleton, meaning I have holes everywhere in my bone, almost like a very severe uh, person that has a, or a severe case of osteoporosis. And my bones are breaking because of pathological fractures. My body cannot support the weight of my, well, my bones, can't support the weight of my body. And then he gives me three to six months to live if I do nothing. This is in September 2018. Um, the disease is incurable. There is nothing that will cure me, but a cocktail of chemotherapy would maybe put me in remission, which would be good for a couple years, and then the disease would come back. I'd have to have a new cocktail of chemotherapy, which would be more caustic than the original because the original wouldn't work anymore. And I would go through that regimen until um, none of it worked, and I was not a good candidate for stem cell therapy. So I would die from the um, complications of multiple myeloma. I would have an extended period of life, but I would still die from multiple myeloma. But the big underlying factor is the quality of my life would go downhill slowly, maybe even rapidly. Now, I'm the kind of guy, I, you know, I was not in denial, and I knew that this could be my, the end. And the only thing that mattered to me was a quality of life, and then I wanted to die. I did not want anything that would decrease the quality of my life. Longevity meant nothing. Quality of life meant everything. So I rejected completely chemotherapy. I had a little radiation on my sternum where the ribs were broken, and the lesion was piercing my, my um, spinal cord. And my lungs, it was impossible to breathe deeply. So the radiation took care of that. However, it was not done to treat the disease, just the, the, the pain. At that point, I started investigating what might work to enhance my, my immune system and my body's ability to heal itself. I, I knew that there were no conventional cures, but I wanted to do what I could. At that time, also, to answer your original question, I am kind of geeky, and I wanted to figure out how the hell could this happen to me? I have been so healthy with all this healthy diet and exercise and lifestyle. How could a healthy guy develop multiple myeloma? Well, first of all, the realization is if you become healthy in six years, it doesn't uh, negate the other 66 years of abusive lifestyle. True. What so were those 66 years? What did that mean for you? Well, you see, I didn't really know because I didn't know what it meant to be healthy. Certainly, I didn't learn to be healthy in dental school. Um, I was five, I'm five foot seven inches tall and I weighed about 187 pounds. So if you do the quick math, it's a little chunky and I didn't realize it. I did exercise. I actually jogged three or four times a week. 
Um, but I ate a lot of carbs, um, sweets, lots of pasta and bread and pizza. And, you know, I just didn't eat what would be called a healthy diet. I was basically on a standard westernized, standard American diet. Um, so I was unhealthy while I did not know that, sadly enough. And all, basically, all my contemporaries are as unhealthy as I was. But here's something very interesting. I found a study that was published in 2012. It was a Brazilian study, but it evaluated dentists in my cohort, the ages of 55 to 75, compared to the general male population of 55 to 75. And it found that there was a significantly higher prevalence of cancer, especially multiple myeloma, on male dentists. Whoa. My age group. So it didn't come to the conclusion why that was, but then I started to think what contributed to something in my four years of dental school and two years of graduate school in those days. And what you just mentioned is absolutely correct. First of all, we placed amalgam restorations in teeth, and sadly enough, it's still being done and taught in dental schools today. They're still doing mercury in 2020. Oh my God. Yeah. I heard stories of like like dental students like holding mercury and like playing with it in their hand. Is that true? Yeah, that's what I did. So we played with mercury in our hands like your kids play with Play-Doh. And the reason we did that, it was fun. Mercury, the silvery, liquidy, but metallic kind of metal. And it rolls and it runs on the floor and it's so much fun to do, right? So we did that, and we actually mixed this liquid mercury with a powder, and it mixed to form a slurry called a dental amalgam, and we actually had to squeeze the excess mercury um, little pellets out of that slushy material, and those little pellets, don't fall on the floor here, those little pellets we flew on the, threw on the floor. We literally threw them on the floor in the dental clinic. Every dental student did it. Every dental instructor did it, and all of these little pellets vaporize, and the dental school, every dental school throughout the country, would have been the most toxic environmental room that you can imagine. Holy crap. Dentists, dental students, and patients. So you're saying that stuff's just floating in the air, I mean literally. Well, it vaporizes so where is it going to go where does it go does it attach to the walls or does it just continue to circulate as air pollution i am not sure i would guess that it vaporizes so it maybe gets sucked up by the air conditioning system and gets into the air conditioning ducts um it probably accumulates into corners and crevices and of course it gets into people's lungs oh man have you seen the documentary called evidence of harm No, but I've seen a few uh, documentaries. So I believe this is the one, Evidence of Harm, but it blew my mind. It may have been another documentary if it wasn't that one. There is a documentary that's going on right now. I think it's called Evidence. So so this one was like a 2015 one, but basically it it had all these like cartoon graphics and stuff about how when dead people go to a crematory and they get burned and all that amalgam in their mouth – uh, go the mercury vaporize. yeah vaporizes and so they were testing people's bodies and those that live close to cemeteries and crematories where they were burning bodies they had higher mercury in their soil in their bodies and their water everywhere in their gardens 
So, you know, the fires in Florida, I mean, in, um, on the, in the West Coast a couple years ago. Yeah, the big wildfires. Fires, and those huge homes that were burning up, there's lots of toxic metals in the environment now. Um, you know, when the Twin Towers went down, um, all that mercury and other metallic uh, material constantly in the environment, uh, in the air, very, very serious and significant stuff. So I believe that was one of the potential toxics, uh, toxins or toxic elements got into my body. And the other is um, low-dose ionizing radiation, which are dental x-rays. So in my clinic in dental school, actually the way it was set up is we had maybe four or so dentists sharing an x-ray machine, and there were 120 or so dental students in my class. So a lot of x-ray machines all around the clinic. And although theoretically you're protected because you stay away from the x-rays, you don't know when they're on other than a little light goes on. You don't hear it or smell it or, or feel it. So walking back and forth in the clinics when the x-rays go on and off over the course of six years, I probably was a little more over, uh, overexposed than you would be. And the sad or interesting thing is that ionizing radiation, low-dose ionizing radiation, is a causal relationship, a causal um, component of multiple myeloma. It causes plasma cells to become malignant. So either and or it's an and or situation. The amount, the mercury and or the ionizing radiation probably just killed, or not killed, unfortunately. It made one plasma cell in my body malignant. It did not kill itself off, and it was not eaten up by macrophages in the immune system, and it started to duplicate. And that's over 40 years ago, and it took four decades, four to five decades, to manifest into this horrendous, devastating, life-threatening disease I have. Wow. So along the way, I mean, the past several decades, it sounded like you were okay. I mean, did you feel suboptimal? Were you sleeping bad, no, energy bad? No, no. You just don't know these things until it overcomes your body. This is one of the big problems, huge problems, that functional medicine doctors deal with, yet they don't deal with it correctly. They deal, you know, let's say the gut microbiome, which is the ultimate critical source for all chronic disease. You, you treat the gut microbiome and you're doing it correctly. So you're using spore-based probiotics because they're the only thing that generate in the gut and you're getting all the metabolites that are necessary and it's improving the quantity and quality of the commensal bacteria and everything is good. The mucus layer is healthy. The epithelial barrier is healthy. All of that is great. And then the patient says, well, you know, or the, the doctor says, well, now we can start reintroducing this or that or whatever, each of which is an irritant, each of which causes a problem. And when they start reinstituting or, or, re, um, um, or, or eating that or, or bringing that irritant back into the body on a regular basis, you, it's just like that splinter I told you about with your finger. It's like starting to stab that finger in the little puncture hole constantly, and all of a sudden, the epithelial barrier starts to break down. And once it breaks down and the immune system works with this, uh, the adaptive system and creating antibodies, all of a sudden, they start to accumulate. But it could take a decade for them to eventually get to the point where it creates chronic disease or autoimmune disease. So reinstituting, um, re, um, 
irritating the gut lining on a regular basis makes no sense. Here's what I tell patients, especially when I do consultations. Our DNA is our blueprint for life. It knows exactly what it needs and it knows exactly what it cannot have. And those are two of the, of the extremes and everything in between we can probably tolerate. So it, we know that we need water. We, if we don't have water, we're going to die. We know that we need oxygen. If we don't have oxygen, we're going to die. We need nutrients or we're going to die. But on the other hand, we know that our body has never had the genetic capability to produce enzymes to break down gluten into the basic amino acids. Just doesn't happen in the human body. You can argue the fact. You can wish it away. You can label arsenic as sugar, but... Whatever it is, it's still arsenic. And the body cannot break down gliadin into its component structures of amino acids. And that gliadin and other peptides irritate the gut lining and create intermittent um, holes. Now, the beautiful thing is our gut lining repairs itself every seven, three to seven days. So if you screwed up your gut, but the next day you were extremely... Um, proactive in doing everything healthy for your gut, in seven days you'll have a new gut lining. Other than maybe some antibodies that are floating in your body, your gut lining is secure. The microbiome has literally re-established itself. It starts to change in 24 hours with a diet. So if you, if you were on an animal-based diet and all of a sudden you were on a plant-based diet, your microbiome changes because of the plant-based diet within 24 hours. And if you go back to an animal-based diet, it changes back within 24 hours. So it's very resilient and adaptive. So you can literally improve your gut very quickly, but you can't keep irritating it with the same irritant or chemical that your DNA blueprint absolutely says, no, no, or you're going to die. Amen. I can't tolerate that. Well, so those are the people that say, well, I'm going to be good all, quote, good. It's like, what do you mean good? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm going to be good all week, and then Friday night yeah. we're having pizza. It's like, right, no. Right. You, you know, cheating, you can cheat on your wife. You can cheat at, you know, you can cheat at golf. You can cheat at many things in life. But one of the things you can't cheat on is Mother Nature and your gut. And you just can't keep irritating something. And agree. when you do that, you're going to have chronic disease, and you don't realize it until maybe decades after it manifests. Yeah. Well, let's get more into the meat and potatoes, because I'm sure that's yeah. what people are drooling for. All uh, right. Along the way here, along the journey, you've been diff doing different things, like PEMF, yes. Uh, yes. like pulsed electromagnetic field therapy, and other things. So is there, now that you're... And, and I hate to say you're in the game, but now that you're in the game with this thing, have you found one particular game changer, one like of the, I guess if you're looking at a pie chart, what's the biggest piece of the pie chart in terms of what's benefited you? It's very difficult to say that because I think it, they all integrate, but let's talk about what I think is the most important. Okay. And the most important, the second most important are really one they, they hold the same um, uh, importance, and that is the diet is critical, absolutely critical. And I started with paleo when I was diagnosed. I went to a paleo autoimmune diet, and then did some really in-depth research and found some 
quite exciting medical um, case studies for cancer patients with a animal-based or a carnivore diet, eliminating all plants. And I can go into that with you a little more detail why it's such a healthy diet. So I started that January 1st, 2020, and I think that that is a significant factor in my health. Wow. The so, other- so carnivore, you're saying, yeah. not plant-based. Because most of the cancer people, plant it's based, like all plant-based, plant-based. Well, here's the thing. Plant-based is is literally rungs about, I mean, levels beyond um, a standard American diet. So if you're a vegan, you're so much healthier than a person that's on a standard American diet. But are you healthy as a vegan? No, you can't. You can't be. I'm sorry, you no, can't I be. Agree. There I is agree. no society in our evolutionary times of 160,000 years of Homo sapiens evolving that have been vegan exclusively. Just doesn't work because our DNA blueprint says we need animal products. We need certain proteins that you cannot get from a vegan diet, period. You can't get vitamin B12, you can't get it from yeast. Period. It just doesn't work. You can't get the real iron that you need from plant foods. It has to be heme iron. Period. It just doesn't work. So if you want to substitute, you want to take a lot of um, um, uh, supplements, uh, you can do that. But that's not a healthy diet. And if you're only sourcing it from plants, it's not going to do well for you long term. Can you survive? Probably. Can you thrive? No. Yeah. Let, let me probe you a little more before we go to the next thing. So since you went carnivore uh, the beginning yep. of this year, what did you notice compared to just more standard paleo? Maybe a steak and sweet potato yes. with broccoli and now it's just a steak? Yeah. No. And that's the big um, correction I need to make for you about carnivores, just not the, the muscle meat. If anything is important, the muscle meat is the least important, although it's important. So um, what I noticed was significant more, significantly more energy. My um, fat ratio actually went down, obviously, uh, because I am burning more fat and I'm leaner, uh, but no m- loss of muscle mass. So I've lost a little bit of weight. I did not need to lose any weight, but I lost some weight. Um, but I think the energy level, which is very difficult to decipher, uh, is significant. Uh, blood chemistries have been okay. So it's not really one way or the other. Here's the important thing. I can get every nutrient that I need, maybe with the exception of vitamin D, but I can get every nutrient that I need from animal products. Now it has to be some of the meat fiber, obviously, but definitely the, the animal fat, and the collagenous material, um, and especially the organs. So what happens is, if you look at the physiology of the human body's digestive system and the physiology of most primates that are herbivores and or omnivores, but mainly they're uh, leaning toward plant-based foods, their stomach has an acid level of maybe three to four. Our human stomach is, has an acid level of 1 to 1.3. The reason is microbes literally spoil meat, and we have to have the ability to kill these microbes. And the first defense for microbes when we ingest food is our stomach acid. Almost no bacteria can survive our stomach acid. Almost none. Um, 
And if it still passes through the stomach acid, the duodenum, the um, bile acids in the duodenum will take care of that. So that's one thing. The second thing is we have a relatively long small intestine, which is where most of all of the fat or the um, animal-based products are absorbed. Um, we have a very short colon, which is where most plant material is digested. We don't have the colon to support plant digestion. Other animals do. And we have almost no cecum. So that's important for the digestion of plant material too. So our physiology is actually evolved to eat more plants than, I mean, more animals than plants. We are omnivorous. We can eat plants, but our bodies prefer animal-based products. The other interesting thing is the animals that you eat, that I eat, that people eat, should be wild-caught or pasture-raised with no chemicals whatsoever. It's all organic, but all natural feed. And so these animals eat grass, and they, they have the stomach and digestive system to break down the anti-nutrients like phytates and lectins and oxalates that we do not have the ability to do well. And they destroyed those anti-nutrients and absorb all these minerals and vitamins into their product, their meat, their fat, their collagenous material, and especially their organs. So when we eat them, they are extremely biologically available with no anti-nutrients. The second thing is, it is a misnomer to think that we would be deficient in vitamin C because we don't eat plants. Well, actually, the healthiest vitamin C is in the liver of most animals. And that vitamin C in the liver is more heat-stable than vitamin C from plants. It's a little different vitamin C. So the heat-stable vitamin C from animal organs is very biologically available for us. Since we're not eating all this excess carbohydrates, the vitamin C needs to get into every cell, but it's competitive with glucose, and glucose tends to win out. That's why if you do vitamin C, which I don't do vitamin C supplements, but if you did vitamin C supplements, you have to force vitamin C to the point where you have to do it IV to get the concentrations that push into the cell because it's competing with glucose. In a carnivore diet, vitamin C is getting into the cell very easily because you're not competing with um, glucose, and it's a different type of vitamin C. And there's some great papers that uh, relate that, and there's a lot of science, medical clinical science in a um, clinic in Budapest, Hungary called Paleomedicina Clinic, and they have had over 4,000 treated patients since 2011 that have severe chronic disease and incurable cancers that are getting healthy and being cured, and they're actually being reported in medical journals in that country from a strict animal-based diet called a paleolithic ketogenic diet, which is a very strict carnivore diet. Um, so Can you take us through your day? This is amazing. Yeah, Can you take yeah. us through just like maybe a sample menu, breakfast, lunch, sure. dinner, so, snacks? So I did not eat until about um, an hour ago. So it's uh, I, I, I do intermittent fasting. I finish my meal like at 7 to 7.30 at night, and I don't eat until 12, 1, 2 o'clock, whenever I'm hungry in the, in the next day. And I may eat one or two meals. I only eat when I'm hungry. When you eat an animal-based diet because of the fat content, I'll tell you about that, um, you get real sa satiated rather quickly. 
and stay satiated. So what did I have? Um, I had, I get this ground beef, it's ground Wagyu beef from Florida that is grass fed and grass finished. And it's awesome. And it's not expensive, like 10 bucks a, ba- a pound. And I, <laughs> I eat that. That's what I had this morning. I had some liver pate and I had some, um, salmon roe. That was my meal this morning. And are you doing ground beef or are you choosing particular cuts or are you avoiding yeah, I do the particular no nah, i do the ground beef mainly um yeah but I, but i do like some uh, ribeyes i like the fattier pieces so what's oxtail which is cow tail um a lot of collagenous material um asubuco which is a very collagenous um short ribs very collagenous so it's very very fatty the whole and collagenous what i want is a gram based on gram ratio of fat to protein of two to one or greater. So for every two grams of fat, I will eat one gram of protein. Now, it's not weighed or measured that way, but I kind of get an idea because, you know, all the packaging tells you how many grams per serving of, of fat and protein. So I'm basically eating saturated fat, um, two grams of saturated fat to one gram of protein. Are you getting uh, like 80-20? Is that the fattiest you can get for the ground beef? Uh, So I'm thinking that it's more fat than – it may be more fat than that. I know the Wagyu actually has a higher concentration of fat, especially omega-3 fatty acids, which is interesting. Um, but I'm not sure exactly the concentration. But I add fat to it. So okay. I cook with either ghee, which I like, or I can add tallow, which is beef fat, or lard, which is pork fat, to the actual meat as it cooks. Cool. So you're probably not doing much bison then. I love bison, but it's I like su- bison. It's a dry. Yeah, it's a dry. I, I have some bison. I haven't had it recently, but I would add quite a bit of fat to it. It's, um, it's so cook. lean. So you'd probably yeah. add you know, some extra tallow to it then? Right, okay. exactly. When I'm chopping it up and cook, cooking it in a frying pan, yeah, I'll, I'll add tallow to it. So a lot of people that are doing liver, they're doing some of these, uh, and I've sold some and I've bought some and I've eaten some, some of these liver capsules, like these pastured, you know, liver yes. capsules and such. Yes. Have you played with those at all? Do you yes. supplement with those? Yes. So there's a company called Enviromedica um, that actually makes a desiccated organ complex and a desiccated um, bone marrow, uh, and they get their um, animal product from grass-fed, grass-finished cattle in New Zealand. So it's um, a very clean and pure, and I take that every day. So I know that I eat liver pate and liver. I don't like beef liver so much, but I like chicken liver, but pork liver is good. But I have that three or four times a week, little servings of it, but I always take the desiccated organ products because most of the nutrients I need, like any other human being, would be in the organ products. So, so I want to make sure I take that. So your biggest go-to is going to be the organ complex and the bone marrow? Yes, as a, as a supplement, absolutely. Okay, because I know they do like a... a, a, a cartilage collagen as well there's a couple there's a couple other companies like them i I do i do do, yeah there are many others and i do um collagen peptides okay from vital 
uh, what's the company? Yeah, like Vital. Vital Nutrients or something. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I put that. Actually, I drink coffee in the morning, and I put that in my coffee. How much are you uh-huh. doing with the collagen? Uh, two tablespoons, so I'm not exactly sure that that would be what they say a normal dose. I can't remember the grams of protein. But you know, the collagen protein is different than the muscle meat protein. You have to have the balance of these two so that you don't have an excess of some proteins that can create a variety of issues. Do they do practitioner accounts for that company that you're using, the uh, Enviro? For the organs and stuff? Um, sure, they do. I have a nice relationship with the uh, CEO because we share stuff. But um, I am sure that they have professional accounts and they can actually arrange for, um, you know, if you have an active website and you sell products, I'm sure that they you can be an affiliate. Maybe you can introduce me. I would love to. Oh, my goodness. Yes. I love um, connecting with people. Jared Ramirez is the CEO and he's brilliant absolutely brilliant um so yeah i will definitely do that i'll send an email to him and you that'd be great because i'm trying to get you know i'm trying to get my clients on board with the organs but you know they'll go out to the farmer's market they'll buy a little liver and they try it they don't know what they're doing so Uh, then they're disgusted they don't ever touch it again right desiccated organs is the way to go and there's nothing wrong with supplementing in that sense because it's a very healthy source. Beautiful. Okay, so let's keep the ball rolling. This is too much fun. We need like five hours. Uh, so, <laughs> so we hit on the organs. You're you're really yes. high with fat. Now, yes. you mentioned kind of a intermittent fast, late lunch, and then are you going to snack at all during the day? And then what's no, your dinner? No, just not hungry. Um, so eggs are always a big thing for me. So I might have eggs in the morning, or I might have eggs at night, which is fine. I usually eat uh, four eggs. I either eat eat them scrambled or over easy. I'll mix them up with um, uh, butter or ghee, uh, giving them much more fat. Sometimes I kind of mix up the egg and the ground beef, or I'll have some eggs and a steak, whatever I feel hungry um, at that time. Um, I do um, sometimes, which is really good, there is a company can't remember the name it's i think it's um i don't remember it's cracklins you know pork rind yep um but cracklins is higher fat than just pork rinds so it's baked cracklins um organic paleo kind of well uh you know pastured pigs and that has a nice crunch to it so i might take that when I'm making the ground beef and it's kind of soupy because of maybe the, the excess fat, I just throw the cracklings in it and, I, and all of a sudden I have this crunchy stuff that's in with the soft ground beef. It's really nice and I do it uh, on a very regular basis. So that's that's excellent and that's good. So if you cook ground beef, let's say you're going to make, uh, not that you're doing cassava or something, but that's what I like to do. I'll do like cassava tortillas and I'll put ground beef in there. You're not going to drain any of the juices out of that ground beef. No, no, I'm going to eat all the all the fat. Nice. I want the fat. And that those cracklings are great because it sucks, um, uh, seeps or sucks up the fat. So you get this, um, so you're not losing it, but you're getting this really nice crunch that is a little softer, but still a nice crunch with the rest of the food. It's very satisfying. Yeah, there's a couple of brands. I know Epic was making the pork rinds for a while. I don't know if they were right. pastured. And then I think it was called like 1814 or something. Some other brand made those. Yeah, and I think the other band that you're talking about is the one I that the ones that I get. Okay, cool. All right, so you'll do some of those. That sounds like a nice 
Nice treat. That's, what else? Yeah. Are you doing berries at all? Any blueberries? No. So here is the interesting scenario, and I'm going to start leaning towards some other things. So the Paleomedicina Clinic has this very strict regimen, but they're getting cures for incurable cancers. This is quite amazing. But they do allow their patients to eat at least 70% animal and maybe up to 30% vegetable and some fruits. Now, I'm not really into that because I, I, I believe that the anti-nutrients in fruits could be a significant problem, the lectins and oxalates. So I want to keep them to a minimum. But it is a possible um, additive for me to have maybe a fruit a day or a vegetable a day. I'm not really doing that right now. But I'm thinking that that might be what I do. I do eat raw honey. Raw honey is an animal product, as you know. It's made from bees. It's not from plants. Uh, eventually, from, ultimately, bees, but they get their source from plants. But still, it's a plant. I mean, it's not a plant-based food. And there are, gee, and how much? How much of that? And how often? Yeah. So I, I want to stay in ketosis. So I'm not eating more than a tablespoon of honey a day, um, but. It is satisfying for me. And there are about 187 biologically active chemicals in honey. And they have oligosaccharides, which are good for the gut bacteria. I do want to mention something else about the carnivore diet. A lot of people think that there's no fiber in a carnivore diet, which basically there isn't, or if there is, extremely minor. But the fiber is not critical for the gut microbiome. And there was a paper that was published less than a year ago that really made it clear, and it showed that the gut microbiome is very adaptive, and it does ferment um, fiber to make short-chain fatty acids, which are critical. But in, 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 if there is no fiber, in the absence of fiber, they ferment amino acids, and they create the same short-chain fatty acids. So that what that means is your microbiome is adaptable in a carnivore diet to make all the short-chain fatty acids, and you don't have to have the fiber for peristalsis because most of the the um, uh, movement of the digestive system to move food through the uh, anus actually has a lot to do with the mast cells in the lamina propria, not the ones that are floating in the bloodstream, but in the lamina propria has a lot to do with the actual activity of the movement of the gut. So there are no, I'll tell you, there are no problems with my bowel movements. Nice. And there are no problems, and I'm not eating fiber. So it's a misnomer that you need fiber for a healthy microbiome, but a healthy microbiome loves fiber, but it does love amino acids. It just has to have the quality of food. That's awesome. Yeah, you got the, you know, the few uh, 80 to 90 year old listeners thinking, you know, they're looking at their Metamucil on the table right now going, oh, yeah, and that fiber is not good. The fiber Metamucil is not good. It's very it's, rough to the colon. It causes swelling. And I'm sure all it's all GMO sprayed crap, too. Oh, I'm sure of that, too. Wow. Okay, so let's move on. That's that's a that's a great, great segment on carnivore. W what else? Other good pieces? of this So the, the most important thing in addition to the diet, is the health of the microbiome, without a doubt. There was a study also that was published only several months ago in a conventional oncology magazine, 
Oncology Journal that explain that if you are on, your patients are on immunotherapy, um, if they are uh, um, candidates for immunotherapy, this is not chemotherapy, immunotherapy, only 20 to 25 percent of patients on immunotherapy are successful. And they suggested, the authors of this paper suggested that the reason is the ones that are successful have a healthy microbiome, gut microbiome. The ones that are not successful have a dysbiosis in the gut. So the gut microbiome is so critical for many, many, many reasons, and it has a lot to do with the immune system and how everything talks back and forth to one another and supports Immunotherapy obviously supports the immune system. All of that is working in tandem to get a result. So the microbiome is critical. So what do I do for my microbiome? I think I have one of the healthiest microbiomes around. So I basically use products from Megaspore Biotic, which is one of the cutting-edge companies, Microbiome Labs does all they don't do the research but they support research and every product is based on research it's not like they make a product and then push and sell it all their products are really based on research so they have some fantastic research behind the spore-based probiotics called metas um, um, uh, megaspore biotic which does create um, spores, five spores get into your system. They're resistant to stomach acid. They germinate in the gut and they also stimulate, create met metabolites like all probiotics do, but they also stimulate the commensal bacteria to grow in number and quality and, um, and create this healthy diversity of a gut microbiome. Uh, they make some other products that support the mucus layer and heal the epithelial barrier, sop up or suck up excess lipopolysaccharides. So the lipo lipopolysaccharides are the uh, cell wall remnants of gram-negative bacteria that have died. They normally are in the colon lumen and they eventually get um, excreted when you go to the bathroom. But when lipopolysaccharides get into the bloodstream, it is highly toxic to the blood and the rest of the body. And that's what happens when you have a leaky gut. The holes in the gut barrier um, are opening too wide for too long. LPS, which should never get into the bloodstream, as well as other undigested proteins, get into the bloodstream, creates metabolic endotoxemia, starts to lead to systemic inflammation, everywhere in the body in different organ systems based on their genetic predilection will either succumb or not. The, the, the biggest problem is that it keeps going on and on. No one is healing their gut, so it's constantly leaking and you have this constant irritation. And on the top of that, since the immune system is working overtime to create all this excess um, reaction to these irritants that if you were to have a severe infection like COVID, for example, it is incapable of mounting the defense that it would have if it was viable and not constantly um, allowing chronic systemic inflammation. So it, everything becomes a vicious cycle. You just need to get that gut healthy, and that's what I do. And I think that's the second most important thing that I do for my my. Um, Protocols. The third is that cancer um, is a disease of, of metabolic dysfunction. That's why 
my gut is so critical and my diet is critical, but it's also a disease of mitochondrial dysfunction. So mitochondria are these batteries that make our cells do what they do. So if you had a flashlight, you wanted the light to glow, you have to put batteries into the flashlight. If you turn the flashlight on and the light is bright, but you keep it on, eventually it dims because the batteries kind of weaken and eventually the light goes out because the batteries die. Those batteries are the mitochondria in our cells. The only cells in our body that don't have mitochondria are red blood cells for a variety of reasons. That's just a different type of cell. But all of our other cells have mitochondria. They're the batteries of the cell. Some cells only have 100 or 200 mitochondria per cell. Other cells, like heart tissue cells, have 3,000 or so mitochondria because they are very energy dependent. So they have lots and lots of sources for creating energy per cell. That's quite a bit of mitochondria. And when these mitochondria don't function well, the cells don't do well. And that leads to all kinds of diseases, but it also leads to cancer. So cancer is a disease of this mitochondria not functioning properly and not creating the right energy sources that need to be done uh, or created, and they use glucose as a, um, a source for their energy, and they're doing it by glycolysis rather than oxidative phosphorylation. They, it's not that efficient, but they use so much glucose, they make a lot of energy, but it's all malignant. So they're just wildly growing cells that have lost their basic function in the body, and that's why they're very unhealthy. So I use what's called pulse electromagnetic field therapy. This is a type of, uh, especially the method I use, has a, several patents. And one of the patents is that the generation of a variety of harmonic waves that are similar to our natural frequencies of our cell structure. And it stimulates the mitochondria to become more functional, but also it stimulates the, the cell membrane so that it allows ions to pass in and out or, or nutrients to go in and junk to go out of the cell more efficiently. And this company um, imports the, the, the mats that I use from Germany and the company is out of Florida. It's called Pure Wave Now. And they have these three unique patents that creates this harmony of waves that no other um, Matt has because they don't have a patent. They actually have demonstrated that this wave pattern can stimulate and improve the, the cell membranes. And thirdly, all pulse electromagnetic field mats generate dirty electromagnetic fields. So this company has a patent that actually filters out the element of the dirty electromagnetic field so it's not part of their harmonic waves. So to me, it makes a whole lot of sense. I use that and I have a protocol, but I use it three to four times a day. Three to four times a day? So wow. Yeah. Well, you know, I'm sitting here at home doing nothing, fiddling my fingers and talking to you. So, no, no. But um, I, I do it first thing when I wake up in the morning. So basically when I wake up and when I go to sleep. And in the middle of the day, if I can, I space it out. I will do one or two more in the, in the day. It's, it's only for eight minutes. And it helps to, again, work with my cell membranes and my mitochondria. But you need to understand, I'm doing this because I have a life-threatening disease. You would not have to do this. Right. You would only – most people that use pulse electromagnetic field therapy 
just use it when they go to bed and when they wake up. The other beautiful thing about pulse electromagnetic field therapy is we're involved with dirty electromagnetic fields all from all over the place. You and I right now are spewing back dirty electromagnetic fields from our computers. In addition, you know, I don't know what's going on with 5G, 4G, 3G, but it does create the, these frequencies that are harmful and does damage our cells. Studies have shown that. But the pulse electromagnetic field therapy, which is unique, literally um, negates the damage from these pulse electromagnetic fields that are dangerous and damaging and dirty. So it kind of neutralizes the effects. So I do not get involved with exotic turn this off, turn that off, have a filter here and, and insulate my house. I mean, you go crazy, right? That stress would, would kill you even if the dirty electromagnetic fields didn't kill you. Yeah, then you got to paint the house, but oh, that yeah, old, but that old yeah. paint we gave you didn't cover this spectrum, and now they increase the spectrum to 30 gigahertz, and so now you got to paint it again and rip the drywall off and put a fabric underneath the drywall. Yeah, well, I, I hope you're doing it, but I'm not. So I use the pulse electromagnetic field Matt, so, because I know that they it, that's neutralizing the damage I'm getting during the day. Now, do you and feel better? Like, do you feel better after recession, or is this just kind of a maintenance thing? Well, you know, it's really hard to tell. I I got to tell you, I feel fantastic. So my energy level is it partly d due to my my diet? Is it due to my healthy microbiome? Is it due to what I'm doing with the pulse electromagnetic field therapy? I don't know, but you're looking at me. Do I look like a dying cancer patient? No, I go to the look, cancer clinic. You look good. I go to the cancer clinic every month. Um, I see cancer patients that are pretty sick. They look terrible. Do you try to They're convince them all to do carnivore? Let me tell you something funny. You would not believe this. So I do, I'm getting some immunotherapy right now. Immunotherapy, again, is not chemotherapy. It's supporting my immune system. So I have to go into what's called an infusion clinic. They put a little needle in my arm, and they drip something into my arm for an hour and a half. This is where cancer patients also are there receiving their chemotherapy. There are nurses in the infusion clinic, nurses in the infusion clinic, passing around chocolate chip cookies oh my and God. soda. This is a well-recognized cancer clinic. I'm sure it's going on everywhere in the world Holy or certainly crap. everywhere in the country. So when I was diagnosed with cancer, I had to have a consultation with the dietitian to discuss nutrition. I was looking forward to it because I wanted to hear what she had to say and I would put in my two cents. Now I'm the kind of guy that um, I can get a little naughty. <laughs> <laughs> Because I'm a little aggressive when things don't go my way. So, you know, if I go to a restaurant, if I were to go to a restaurant and order a, a really nice piece of grass-fed steak um, and I wanted it medium rare and it came back well, I would let them know that it was wrong. Yeah, it's probably going to be 50 bucks a piece, so you better get it right. Yeah. So anyhow, so I'm listening to this dietitian. And she's telling me the things to eat. And she said, basically, it's so critical that you don't lose weight. And I get that. And she says, whatever is satisfying to you that you can eat and doesn't make you nauseous, absolutely eat. I said, well, wait a minute. You're, talking, you're telling me I can eat sandwiches and pizza and, and cookies and cakes? She said, well, 
if that's what you want, that's fine. You just don't, you can't lose weight. I said, you don't even know who I am, but I know a little bit about the gut microbiome, a little bit about diet, and I know that grains and sugar and processed seed oils are extremely destructive to the body, and it influences the gut microbiome that may even have caused cancers in some of your patients, and you're telling me I can eat anything as long as it makes me not lose weight? We left. She did not like me, and I did not like her. But this is what they tell cancer patients. So there's a disconnect between maybe good treatment, although I don't think chemotherapy is good treatment, maybe good treatment, and the concept that diet means nothing other than putting calories on. I don't get that. I, I know. just don't understand it. Well, you and I were talking before we hit record. Uh, I've been on the hunt for farmland that's not next to farms. And so we found this 75-acre parcel that was beautiful. They've been raising grass-fed beef for the farmer's market for like 20 years. But guess what's 50 feet next door, which is all that the uh, USDA requires. You can call it organic. But 50 feet away, you could have literally a freaking helicopter spraying dicamba and 2,4-D and glyphosate. But, oh, but we didn't use it, so it's still organic, which, which is sickening. But anyway, yeah, it's a sad part. I started talking to this uh, farmer. I got her number because I wanted to figure out what does she spray, how often does she spray it, and all that, right? And, of course, convince her to stop doing that. And guess what? Her husband has cancer, and they live in the middle of this field and yeah. because the corn was too high last year, they brought in the helicopter to spray. Oh, but we kept the doors and the window shut for a day or so. It's like yeah. I told her, I was like, ma'am, you know, I'm not trying to hurt your feelings at all. I said, but the reason your husband has cancer is exactly, you know, possibly the reason your husband has cancer is exactly what you need to stop doing, which is these chemicals. And she's, I'm going to keep spraying. We've been spraying like this for 40 years. And I'm like, I understand. I understand. And that was pretty much the end of it. And obviously we didn't buy that farm. Sadly enough, as you know, there are class action suits right now against Monsanto. Now Bayer, who owns Monsanto, um, because glyphosate has been proven to cause lymphoma. It's also causing everything else, but they have proven that and there are class action suits all over the world, all over the country, um, because of glyphosate or Roundup. So, you know that sad. one big story. There was that guy who uh, got two hundred and eighty million dollars awarded. But I read a story the other day that because of all the appeals process, he hasn't gotten the money. So he said he may never get the money in his lifetime, even though he was quote awarded two eighty. You hear the headline: Oh my God, two hundred eighty million dollars! I'm going to sue. I got cancer, glyphosate, but. He hasn't seen a penny of it, apparently. I, I had not heard that, but that is sad. Yeah, um, that's very sad. Have you but connected with? Is, have you talked with uh, Stephanie Seneff before? No, I haven't. I want to I connect you two. I think y'all have a great conversation together. She's an MIT researcher. She's been writing about glyphosate and how you know parts per billion have been shown to kill beneficial bacteria and all that for oh, years. Right. So right, right, uh, right. I'll, I'll introduce you guys because I think you should know each other, and I'm sure she would love to hear your story about what Thank you've you. done because she lives out in Hawaii part-time, and they've got pastured chickens, and they're doing the organic farm thing out there, but she's from Boston, so cool lady. I'd like to. I'd like that. Thank you. 
Well, let's wrap up. So um, one thing I didn't ask you, if we could just briefly cover, is the mental, spiritual, emotional piece of this. You know, you hear some people that have gone down the cancer rabbit hole, and they talk about, well, it was my trauma. I was holding on to anger because of what my father did to me as a kid. Or, you know, this traumatic experience happened when I was 16, and I never let it go, and da-da-da. So you hear all these emotional pieces, and they go and do a spiritual journey, and they'll go do psychedelics and the jungle, and then their mind is blown, and everything is crystal clear and then they just uh, emotionally forgive everyone that they held grudges against and all of a sudden their cancer disappears what what do you well, think first that? of all that's uh, the, the what you're saying is fantastically important um, stress is one of the factors that is generally misunderstood or poo-pooed as a factor in disease I will tell you a quick story, and that is maybe 15 plus years ago, I was working as a periodontist in a practice, and the periodontist I was working with had a patient that came into the office. She came in, um, she had in her mouth severe hyperplastic, raw, pebbly gum tissue. It looked like leukemia or dilantin hyperplasia, if you are familiar with that at all. But it was just ugly looking. You didn't have to be a dentist for her, you to look in her mouth and say, oh my God, what's going on? And there was nothing that was in her mouth that caused this disease. And the periodontist sent her to her physician to have a battery test to make sure she didn't have leukemia, because leukemia looked like that. There was no medical problems, no dental problems, except she had this ugly, raw, pebbly, really aggressive-looking um, lesions in her mouth on the gum tissues, top and bottom. Turned out that she confided in this dentist that I worked with that her she was uh, maybe in her early 30s, worked in Charleston, South Carolina, had no family. She was just working here and living here. Uh, no ties to the city, but her employer was verbally and sexually abusing her, and she was under severe emotional stress. My colleague convinced her to quit, and she found another job out of town, and she moved away. She disappeared for four months. When she came back, she came back to the office, and, and my colleague took pictures of before and after. She had no dental treatment, no medical treatment, but all of the dental lesions disappeared. Now, what, what that means is, and there are other studies that prove this, but this is so visual. And I'll send you the before and after slides if you want to, you, you, you'll be very interested sure. to look at this. So what that means is stress creates this disruption in the HPA axis, as you know, creating an enormous amount of cortisol. And what happens in the epithelial barrier as a result of continuous stress is that you develop um, a leaky gut because it, fluids need to get out of the gut and glucose has to get out of the gut to deal with the, with the, um, the stress situation chemically and LPS gets out of the gut and it creates metabolic endotoxemia leading to all kinds of diseases and her tissues in her mouth were susceptible to this real severe inflammation that it expressed themselves as this ugly, ugly lesions. But when all the stress was gone, like I said, the epithelial barrier heals within seven days. When all the stress was gone, she didn't have an unhealthy gut. It's just that she had excessive stress 
when that irritant was gone, that splinter was taken out of her finger, theoretically, the lesions healed. Amazing. So you're relating stress to me? Yeah, I have stress in my life. Did that cause my cancer? I don't think so. I think what I did in dental school caused my cancer. But could it have an effect? Of course. Um, you have to have so many things going right to have a healthy body. And control of stress is one. You have to have efficient exercise. You have to have restorative sleep. All of these, if they're not efficient, if they're dysfunctional, is going to create an irritant to the gut. I wrote a paper called Your Gut is Killing You. I'll send you that if you'd like. It's a long paper, like 38 pages, but it has 270 peer-reviewed cited references. And it basically says what um, Hippocrates said 2,000 years ago, and that is the, the disease um, starts in the gut. And I believe that is the case. And um, stress has a lot to do with it. I am very spiritual. That has a lot to do with my ability to accept my death, but I am not religious. So I don't support a religion, but I do believe that we are, we have a soul and our bodies um, are a receptacle here on this earth. And I believe the soul lives on and whatever my purpose is, I think I am um, making that happen. Nice. Well, I'm glad to hear you put so much emphasis in the gut because, I mean, that's like the primary thing I do because of all my gut suffering that led me to do what I do. So I, I work on other stuff, mold and all the other issues, but those, you know, mold and all that crap messes up the gut too. So, right. So if you have a strong gut microbiome, it offsets and, and, uh, um, pushes away the parasites and, and the mold. I mean, it brings it back into a state of homeostasis. Yeah. Yeah, well, I didn't hear any vitamin C IVs. I didn't hear mistletoe, a lot of so these standard things. So let me things. tell you about vitamin C. So again, Medicina Clinic has some very interesting studies that they post on their website why vitamin C therapy is not effective. Um, quite interesting. Um, it's a real heavy push process. Uh, every cell has to have vitamin C, but if you're getting vitamin C in a better way, you don't have to have IV vitamin C. I've never done IV vitamin C, and I do believe I'm getting the proper amount of vitamin C from my um, organ, liver, tissues. Nice. Yeah, when I was in uh, the, I guess, the recovery room after my cavitation procedure, there was a guy that was getting some uh, IV vitamin C, and he was like, well, I hope this helps my cancer, and uh, that was kind of his only therapy was the IV stuff. So, Listen, I think that pushing a vitamin C to the extreme levels probably has maybe some beneficial effect, but you know there are side effects to excess vitamin C, certainly you know that. Yes. And um, the idea of an antioxidant, the, the true antioxidant, at least one of the major elements of antioxidant activity is our natural gl glutathione. Um, make our glutathione function. And we can do that by intermittent or multi-day fasting. We can do that by high intensity interval training, proper sleep. We can we can make our glutathione do what it's supposed to do, and it's a great way to detoxify too. Yeah. Well, let's wrap this thing up. I've had a blast. We'll have to stay in touch and uh, definitely. Absolutely. Thank you. It, it's been a pleasure, and definitely connect with me with those Enviro people because I definitely want to try theirs. I, I've played with other pastured organs before, but theirs sounds good, so I want to try it. And I'm going to do that for you. Okay. Thank you so much. And if people want to reach out. Uh, Dr. Danenberg is available for consults, and you can check out his website. He's got some great blogs on 
like he has one that was titled his attitude and plan which which i thought was good there's a bunch of blogs and i I really appreciate you being open and sharing this stuff it means a lot to me and others and so you all can check out his website dr like dr dannenberg so d-a-n-e-n berg b-e-r-g dr dannenberg.com and there's a lot of good resources there so please check it out thanks all right well you take great care of yourself you too All right. I hope you enjoyed that show. Now, does this mean everybody needs to go on the carnivore diet? No, it doesn't. But I think it'd be something to consider if I were really sick and had cancer. I think I'd probably be going for it. His story is not the first story I've heard like this. Now, of course, you got the vegetarian vegans out there. And if you all made it this far, wow, good for you having an open mind to make it through a podcast like this. But those people will argue, well, plant-based diet's the way to cure cancer. And then you got the guy here saying, oh, carnivore's been the game changer. Now, I'm not going to call out names specifically, but there's a, a couple of friends of mine out there in the health space, uh, one in particular who had cancer and got surgery and removed the cancer and then was also doing a plant-based diet. So there's multiple ways to skin a cat, as they say, and that's a weird saying, by the way, but... Here's the deal. Does a low inflammatory nutrient-dense diet help people across the board? Yes. And are there ways to get nutrients from plants? Yes. Are there ways to get nutrients from meat? Yes. Are they both anti-inflammatory? Yes, if the quality is there. So I don't know. I don't know. This is just interesting, isn't it? But we'll leave it at that for today. We'll break this down further in the future. But I think there are multiple ways to go about this thing. And I do believe if you can handle it and your gut's in good shape, that the antioxidant value of vegetables, the polyphenols that you get from certain fruits, I think they're beneficial. I feel great on them. So, And I've seen kids who are not susceptible to the placebo effect. I've seen children, once I give them some organic greens powder, I've seen their symptoms turn around. So I don't think there's one end-all, be-all approach, and you all know that by now. I mean, we've been talking nutritional therapy here for eight years straight, so you know that by now, but it's always worth repeating. If you need help clinically, please reach out. I've got Megan Gump, my functional medicine practitioner on staff. She works alongside with me, and she does those 15-minute free calls. So if you have symptoms, concerns, symptoms, we'd like to hear about those. And you can book it at my site, evanbrand.com. And then check out my orderroots.com store. I'm continually improving it and adding new products all the time. These are functional medicine, doctor formulated. These are only available to healthcare practitioners to make them. You can buy them as a layperson, but you're only allowed to use this specific manufacturer if you're a healthcare provider. So this is not like other brands where they do what's called consumer contract manufacturing, where you have a random warehouse gathering ingredients from China, putting them in a bottle, and then putting a nice pretty label on them. That's not what we do. These are all USA companies. They're all GMP certified Basically, they're laboratories is what they are in terms of testing for purity, potency, heavy metals, mycotoxins, all of it. Every single thing I use is of the utmost quality and purity. And it has to be because I'm working with these people clinically and using my formulas. And if they don't work, people won't continue to hire me and then I won't pay my bills. So this stuff has to be insanely good quality and it is available. So like my True Multi, for example, my Mito Boost, which is like a multivitamin for the mitochondria, that's what I've been using during the summer. I've been feeling great with that. M I T O, Mito Boost, 
My hydration essentials have been a game changer for me as well. That is my electrolyte formula that has about close to two grams of a mixed vitamin C in there as well. But you've got your taurine, your sodium, potassium, and all that. So if you're looking for a few kind of low-hanging fruit things to check out, those and then the pure digest enzymes, I think could really improve your life. So that's AuraRoots.com. Notice I don't have any ads or sponsors on my show. Uh, I've considered it. We've done them in the past. We may do more if we find the right person. But I would really like you to just check out those things. And please reach out at my site, EvanBrand.com. Links should all be in the show notes right there on your podcast app. But please get in touch if you have any questions. Take care.